What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Claire Odimodi. Today on our podcast, tracking the China headlines, tech stocks tumbling, COVID rising, and the he said, she said geopolitics. In Beijing with Eunice Yu. There are a lot of question marks as to whether or not China's relationship, its very close relationship with Russia, is going to end up becoming a big issue for U.S.-China relations. And the Biden administration fighting inflation with more spending? Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg explains. We're thinking a lot about bang for our buck, right? In the infrastructure bill, we got $1.2 trillion of, I would definitely call it investment, but yeah, it is critically important that we are tight about that. Those stories plus brackets are ready. The gender wage gap is still a problem and the oil markets are moving. We saw oil WTI at $130 and change last Monday. This morning I saw it at 96 and change. It's Tuesday, March 15th. Yes, it's the Ides of March. Squawk Pod begins right now. First up today, an update from the oil patch. U.S. crude prices are sliding lower. They've slipped about 8% and below $95 a barrel, while international Brent is also down and below $98 a barrel. But it's key to remember, $98 and $95 a barrel are still really high. Just a week ago, crude oil hit its highest level in 13 years, topping $130 a barrel in response to Russia's aggression in Ukraine. Joe Kernan and Becky Quigg put oil's moves in perspective this morning. It was uh, just last Monday that oil touched above $130 a barrel. So huge swings. First, huge runs up and then huge runs down. And, and you got to wonder who that leaves in the lurch in some of these situations when you see moves like that. I guess in all markets, there's there's a lot of psychology that, gets, that puts prices where they are. Yeah. And many times, it, it may be a few sessions, but supply and demand dynamics Clearly. I mean, eventually so, so take over. The issue over. of supply, whether Russia is going to be able to, to, to get its oil out to market, um, and then followed up by shutdowns in China because of COVID. But if the spot picture. doesn't follow the, the hysteria of the futures, it's like, okay, yeah. this is what it's going for right now. And you right. can see where people are willing to sell it and what people are willing to pay for it. And, you know, it's just, it's not going to, the, uh, the psychology or the excitement or whatever, or the speculation, what, the fervor, whatever it is, comes out of it uh, eventually. It's just hard. The latest for me, it's just, it's hard to, you know, we talk about markets and everything else. It's just hard for me to read the papers now. It, the, the, it's, a, it's a terrible, perfect storm of, of just hideous events because these troops, these Russian troops, their supply chain broke down. So they, got, they don't have any food, so they're they're rape pillaging and I don't know about rape, but they're pillaging and plundering and going into supermarkets and, you know, civilians. The, the misery that's going on over there, it's a, it's a half a world away. But in, in this day and age, it seems much closer because it, it, it just we see so much. We're watching it. it. We're watching yeah. it. We're watching it play out. And, and when I hear about, yeah, peace. 
What are you looking for for peace? Why is there a war? Why is there a war in the first? Why is there the it, shelling? It was, it was a it was a an, a, a a war that was chosen by Putin. Yeah. So to try and get peace as if there's some, you know, some gripes or some, you know, that, that I guess that he's in, in, in he his wants. world he Let's thinks talk about yeah what he in wants. his world he thinks that that he's got grievances. But yeah. well, this, it, and then there's you know China. We we need to, I, I can't imagine that they would supply weapons. Knowing what's going on, if there's any sense of, of right and wrong on the global arena, there, there's no way that they could justify helping Russia With militarily. Yeah. Is there? They want to be part of the global community or not? You know, the other stuff we, we kind of, you know, it's not front and center, the Uyghurs and all the other things that, that China typically does, but, you know, this, they're out. When, they do, when they're, you know, in this setting, they're out. They're fully out with who they are, right now, who they're, they're denying, aligned with, they're and, and what they that are. The request for weapons came, or the request for military assistance came, but we'll see. I don't know. <laughs> if I read it in the paper, I, I you know, you can't. It's been pretty it. widely reported. It has. Yeah. As you heard, it's a geopolitical. He said. He said. He said. The U.S. says that Russia asked China for military aid in its war on Ukraine and for help avoiding Western sanctions. And U.S. officials determined that China signaled it would be willing to oblige. But the Kremlin denies that it asked for help. And in Rome, where Chinese and U.S. officials met for seven hours to discuss the conflict, Beijing officials denied the whole thing, dismissing it as disinformation. And this is only one of a series of headlines coming out of China. In other news, the sell-off in China's tech sector is intensifying. China is facing an uptick in COVID infections, sparking lockdowns in manufacturing facilities and port cities. And while that's happening, the SEC here in the US is cracking down on Chinese tech stocks. In the past week, the SEC has highlighted five companies publicly listed in both the US and in China that have not adhered to audit requirements. And this could lead to a delisting of those companies from Wall Street. And it raises concern amongst investors that the scrutiny will expand to the other 270 firms duly listed in both markets. Plus, Beijing has heightened regulatory scrutiny on its own domestic firms. As a result, Chinese internet stocks and indices are way down. The Hang Seng dropped nearly 6% overnight, with the Hang Seng Tech Index down an additional 8%, with Alibaba, Tencent and JD.com amongst the biggest decliners. Eunice Yoon joins us right now. She's in Beijing. And, and Eunice, this has been pretty unrelenting at this point. Absolutely. Uh, Chinese tech stocks in Hong Kong um, have had a very volatile time uh, with the Hong Kong uh, tech index ending down by 8%. A lot of this is driven by investors who are trying to reassess the prospects for dual listed Chinese firms uh, because of a place like where I am now, which thrives off of China-Russia trade. Uh, there are a lot of question marks as to whether or not China's relationship, its very close relationship with Russia, is going to end up becoming a big issue for U.S.-China relations. Um, after the talks in Rome uh, between uh, Chinese and U.S. officials, uh, China today uh, continues to repeat its um, blame of the U.S. Uh, for the Ukraine crisis. And also uh, the foreign ministry, again, rebutted the U.S. claims that Russia asked military uh, support and that China was open to it. Now, in addition to that, uh, weighing on sentiment are a lot of 
um, individual stories in tech. Uh, one of the more prominent ones is the idea that the Chinese cyber uh, watchdog called in yet another tech company, a social media firm called Doban, uh, which just indicates to um, a lot of people here that their tech regulatory uh, crackdown is not over. And then, of course, is uh, the, the COVID outbreak here. Um, another a city was um, put into lockdown, a city of Langfang, which is nearby Beijing. And then the military and medical staff um, are starting to get sent into, into one of the hardest hit areas, um, the province of Jilin. So um, a lot of concern about this outbreak. And uh, Shanghai as well uh, confirmed that it is diverting its international flights um, as of Monday until May. So um, the, the city itself is trying to calm uh, public fears um, that uh, this is a lockdown, saying that there is no lockdown at the moment. Uh, Shenzhen as well has been trying to walk back some of those um, concerns about a lockdown, saying that it's um, not, not necessarily a partial lockdown, but uh, it's a week of uh, slow living. Uh, that's what they said. Um, however, uh, there are concerns among a lot of the businesses in Shenzhen. In fact, there is an association for online uh, businesses uh, that warned its customers and uh, that, that they could see more delivery delays. And they actually said that uh, retailers, uh, so sh people who shop on Amazon or who um, go to, to Walmart sites uh, could end up having to wait a whole lot longer uh, for their goods to arrive. In fact, the estimates now are at least a delay of another two weeks. Guys? Eunice, the numbers that we hear coming out of China are incredibly small, relatively speaking, just in terms of the case count. We get cases, I think we still have something like 8,000 cases a day here in the United States. My guess is we probably shouldn't believe those numbers when you see huge shutdowns like this, when you see concerns, and when you see military and medical personnel being sent to the Jilin province. Is that because they are being overrun in terms of the medical system and, and don't have enough to be able to help people who are getting severely ill? Is, is, is that the understanding? Well, that is, that's a big part of it, but it's also just the overarching policy that Beijing's goal is to reach zero cases or as close to zero cases as they can. So um, when you have, say, around a little bit over 10,000 cases at this point, even though it's small relative to the U.S., um, since the start of the year, I mean, it's small, but but it's um, it's it's large uh, for for China, which is trying to uh, get to a point where they don't have to have all these outbreaks. And they are worried that things can get out of control. A lot of the the finger pointing is goes to Hong Kong, um, you know, where the, the Omicron surge has gotten ahead of the authorities there. And uh, China doesn't want the same thing to happen over here. Eunice, thank you. This also makes you start to wonder if there are going to be serious dislocations in the markets, how that plays out, what the broader implications are when you start to see pressure points like this, big moves like we've seen in oil. That always leaves somebody hanging out to dry. And the question is who? If they ever, you know, open the Russian stock market again, that's, who knows where that's going to be, too. I mean, there are, there are 40 and 50 percent losses all over the place. Well, there are here in our NASDAQ there and are. our tech stocks, too. There are here. More than 50% in, in some cases. The latest from Ukraine, Kyiv's mayor said this morning that Russian shells have hit several residential buildings there. The attack on the capital comes as Russian and Ukrainian officials are set to continue talks today. Separately, the prime ministers of Poland, Slovenia, and the Czech Republic have all announced that they will travel to Kyiv today to meet with leaders of Ukraine. And CNBC has learned that President Biden and other NATO leaders are discussing holding a meeting in Brussels next week. The details of that meeting are still being finalized. 
In the meantime, in Russia, a protester disrupted a state-run television news broadcast holding a sign that read, no war, stop the war, don't believe propaganda, they are lying to you here. After a few seconds, the channel switched to a different report and the protester was not seen again. Sources, though, identified the woman as an employee of the channel. They said she was an editor and she could face charges for discrediting the armed forces, which at this point is illegal in Russia. And you got to think about that. You may not like what people have to say here, but about the worst thing that's going to happen to you here, if you say something that people don't like, is you're going to get kicked off Twitter. We don't know what will happen to this protester. And uh, there are some Americans stuck over there right now. And about the last place I'd want to be stuck is in a, a Russian prison with this uh, as a backdrop. But it, there's, there's, a, there's a few, more than you know, the basketball uh, player. Right. And a Some former military veteran, executives, and who knows how many would be there if, if, you know, media, if we still had media there continuing to try to do business, or even, I don't know, uh, multi, multinationals. I'd get all my employees out of oh, there. That's, that's what point. most of them are doing at this yeah. point if they haven't already. Right. What a time for a nominee to the Fed who has a stated intention, perhaps, of making it difficult making it for the Fed getting involved with fossil fuel uh, sort of financing. Bank, banks, yeah, loans made from <laughs> after banks. After the last, so she was nominated a couple months ago, and now all this has happened. So um, the latest Democratic Senator Joe Manchin said yesterday he does now oppose President Biden's Fed nominee Sarah Bloom Raskin, and that throws her confirmation into doubt. They'd need a Republican now to replace him. To, to, he's not on the actual committee to, to move it forward. Uh, but you would need a, a Republican to, to swing over. In a, in a statement, Senator Manchin said, her previous public statements have failed to satisfactorily address my concerns about the critical importance of financing and all of the above energy policy to meet our nation's critical energy needs. As a result, Senator Manchin said he's unable to support her nomination. Raskin has previously called for stronger climate policies and uh, criticized the energy sector. Uh, the Democrats' defection makes her confirmation unlikely, unless she can win support uh, from a Republican um, senator. And I like that. It, he doesn't say, well, her, her comments make it unlikely she'd back fossil fuel production. He says, you know, he gets a little bit of cover by saying, and all of the above. Now, well, I think she'd back all the renewable initiatives. So when you say all of the above, what you're really saying is, yes, yeah, she'll back the renewables. She won't back the other ones. Mansion comes from West Virginia. All of the above. But he doesn't. Coal is very well, important. Just say what it is. You're yeah. from West Virginia. It's not all of the above. You know, you know you're, you're not thinking solar panels and, and wind farms. No. That's not what No, what that's what it comes saying. down to with us. All right, we're going to go to break. Uh, before we do that, uh, Becky just mentioned that I did not wear my Scotty dog tie. Uh, today and it's I always I always wear that uh, it, because it's my son's birthday his name's Scott and I just couldn't I couldn't pull it out it's like it's it's so wide now that I just could not pull it off anymore but why because he's 20 and I've been wearing this tie for 20 years you know what happens the ties in 20 years they're out of style within like two oh, or three years Scott. so it, it was like yeah. this yes that's what okay. he would uh, viewers I know him this. viewers know him because it's been 20 years Hello. Yeah, hi. What is there? Is there a problem? No, I am just asking you that. Um, you want me to wrap? I know I got you to wrap. Everything else okay? 
Um, yes, I am in here, and I'm going to switch it on to Blake. All right, Blake's going to tell me to sit up straight, to smile, uh, get, uh, enough, all right. I can't believe he's 20 years old. Happy birthday, yep. Scott. <laughs> Unbelievable. The viewers have watched him and his sister yeah. uh, grow up. Time to hear from, from some of our youngest uh, lawyer viewers. We want to quiz them about what, what uh, some of them know about uh, about Scott. Um, What's your name? Oh. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> I'm Andrew. Scotty, yeah? I don't have Facebook. You don't have Facebook. You have Instagram. And time passes so quickly. He's an incredible son and a great brother. And he's a true film aficionado. I mean, almost like a genius and a cinephile. And we're, we're so proud of him, uh, Penelope. And I, of him and all, we are so proud of Penelope and I are so proud of him. Yes, and I and all of his accomplishments. Happy birthday, uh, Scotty. Happy birthday, Scott. I can't believe he's 20. I can't either. <laughs> it goes so fast. And the last couple of years, yeah. been kind of tough on everyone, but then again, we're, we've been together so much, it's kind of, kind it of is. good. It is a joy. Yeah. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, the Biden administration finds its flow on a clogged supply chain. What we're finding is there are gaps in knowledge between the truckers, the warehouses. Flow is a partnership with these private sector players to make sure more of that data is shared. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg joins us to explain. We'll be right back. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm Nick. I'm getting married today. I'm also a firefighter and first responder. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can make it to my ceremony to start the next chapter of my life. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. You're listening to Squawk Pod, today with Joe Kernan and Becky Quick. Up track, stand Becky by. Here's Becky. The White House announcing a new supply chain program this morning that is expected to help speed up delivery times and reduce consumer costs. That program is named Flow. It's a partnership between the Biden administration and 18 companies, including Target, True Value, Land Lakes, Albertsons, FedEx, UPS and more. Joining us right now with the details is Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. And Mr. Secretary, how does this program work? So what we found early on, ever since we've been working this supply chain issue, is there are some real gaps in how data is shared. You, you might assume that the different players in our supply chain know where everything is and where it's moving, when it's going to get there. But because there are so many different players, it doesn't actually work that way. And what we're finding is there are gaps in knowledge between the truckers, the warehouses, the ultimate owners of the cargo, the shippers, even different parts of the port within the same port. So Flow is a partnership with these private sector players that own or operate uh, the, the bulk of our supply chains to make sure more of that data is shared. So that, for example, uh, uh, a trucker knows when a container is actually going to be ready. 
so they don't have to spend hours waiting at a port gate for something that's not actually prepared for them to pick it up. Uh, knowing when chassis are available to load these containers onto. Knowing when the last day is to return a container so that it could actually make the cutoff date for a ship before it sails. This is information that has generally been tightly held by companies, but we're not talking about proprietary information. There's actually a lot of benefit to all of the players that share it. These Private sector partners have stepped up. I'm going to be with them at the White House later on today, cementing this coalition and hopefully beginning to grow it because we do think this will lead to smoother shipping, shorter times, and ultimately lower costs. Is it a software program that all of these companies agree to put that data into? Is it, I mean, is it something that a trucker can access using a mobile phone? Does he need a special uh, computer piece to, to make it all work? Yeah, it'll be a digital tool. You could think of it like a website, and uh, it's all voluntary, but the, the more folks participate in it, the more they get the benefit of it. In other words, it's sort of bring data to get data. Uh, we think that this kind of sharing is especially important uh, in order to fill in some of those inefficiencies that we've noticed. I mean, again, truckers is a classic example uh, where, you know, and partly because of how they're compensated, they're eating a lot of cost uh, from sitting idle because they're not ready for them at the warehouse or they're not ready for them at the port. Uh, same thing with the actual owners of the cargo. That's why you see folks like Target and, and Albertsons uh, on the list of companies that are participating. They don't always have visibility into what's in which container, which means they can't make decisions about which containers need to get to their warehouses more urgently. We can do something about that, but there's nobody who's been in a position to, uh, to create it. Uh, certainly nobody can uh, order that it's created. Again, these are uh, private sector players, but enough of them see the benefits of it that they're joining this coalition led by the White House. Where do things stand with the supply chain issues at this point? Because just uh, when we think we might be coming through some of it, you hear about lockdowns coming in, uh, across broad provinces and, and, and giant cities in China. And that has a lot of people concerned about uh, potential road bumps again with the supply chain. Yeah, it does have this feeling of, of three steps forward, two steps back, but there's been a lot of meaningful and real progress. It's definitely improved the, the rate of containers that are backing up at these uh, big coastal ports. These ideas like the temporary pop-up container yards have clearly made a difference. They've actually helped on the export side, too, with agricultural exports in particular. Uh, but look, as long as we have global supply chains, we're going to be vulnerable to things that happen half a world away when there's a shutdown in Asia. Obviously, that can be an issue. And that's one of the reasons why the president and the administration also continue to focus on making more of our critical goods right here in the United States. So that when you really need to count on something, uh, you don't have to wait for it to come in on a boat from China. You know, we, we know that the, the backups at the ports were something we've focused on for a long time, but then there were reports of the ships being ordered to stay a little further out. I, I think the most important thing to measure is how long does it take something to get from here to there or from there to here? What, what have we done in terms of, of cutting down that time? Has, it, has the wait time shrunk? That's right, yeah. If you measure it in terms of, uh, for example, the, the containers that are just sitting there uh, versus moving, there have been some real improvements there. I would agree with you that it's partly in terms of wait times. It's also in terms of costs, right? We have seen uh, margins and, and spot rates go through the roof. We're looking for those to settle out a little bit, but we still have, uh, you know, off the charts demand. Uh, we got out of the holiday season and went right into the home improvement season and continue to see that overall imbalance between demand and supply. As far as the ships, this is an important note. So 
I want to be clear, just because you see fewer ships off the coast of, of a place like LA Long Beach, that's not automatically a sign of progress because there is a new system for queuing that makes more sense environmentally. It's the right thing to do, but I don't want anybody to think that that, that should, should be confused with kind of solving the issue. That's why what we really count is how many ships are on their way, whether you can see them or not, you know, standing there in San Pedro Bay. There have been improvements in that count too, but it's still very high. Mr. Secretary, we have lots of, of uh, discussions about inflation and what causes it, and it has got, gotten somewhat uh, politicized, there's no doubt about it. I just want to read you something from Speaker Pelosi, though, that I, I actually tweeted it out, and, and I, I just wonder whether, whether she, she believes this and whether it's the view of, of the administration. See what you think. Uh, when we're having this discussion, it's important to, to dispel some of those who say, well, it's the government spending. No, it isn't. The government spending is doing the exact reverse, reducing the national debt. It is not inflationary. Can you somehow uh, give me the logic? Uh, does the administration, do you feel that, that that's a, an accurate statement? And, and how do you, uh, how does that work? How, how would you make that statement in a, in a logical way? Well, I mean, first of all, if you look at our fiscal policy, it is true, and amazingly, uh, a lot of people don't even know this, that the deficit has gone down, uh, and, and down by a, a remarkable amount. Uh, so I think part of it is an expression of that. I think also, also part of it is pointing to the fact that some of the investments that we make uh, help with inflation. I mean, that's definitely true with the infrastructure investments, right? Because we know how infrastructure is related to supply chain, supply chain is related to Inflation. It's one of the reasons why, you know, when there was this, this big fight over whether the infrastructure bill was going to be a problem for inflation, you had a lot of economists saying, actually, this and then the Build Back Better vision, you know, taken together, this is going to ease inflationary pressures. Now, uh, I also think that the economic environment we're in is very different from the one that that we had to climb out of, where the president led the investments that got us from, you know, staring off the cliff, worrying about recessions and depressions, to an unprecedented level of job creation and economic growth uh, in that, that first year of this presidency. And along with that uh, have come a, a lot of dynamics that we're not used to seeing. Uh, and, and part of that's definitely a result of fiscal policy, but it's a fiscal policy success that our economy is growing and, and growing in a better way than uh, I think most any other developed country. But it sounds like she's saying we're going to spend our way out of debt. And obviously no one that has a credit card bill thinks that the answer is to, to spend more. And, and just, just to say that, that government spending actually reduces the debt, that, that's, I don't, maybe she didn't mean that. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. The only way I can see that making sense is government spending's come down. But. So I'm thinking about things like preventive maintenance, right? Where if you, if you fail to spend on a leaky roof, uh, you're going to run up a bigger bill. You can find a few examples, but in general, we should really, you know, we, we want to get anything we invest in, and you, you, the, the, frequently we'll hear that, that it's an investment not spending. It should be something that hopefully you're, you're getting good returns, not wasted. And, and, you know, hopefully we do try for to sure. tighten our belts as much as possible. Well, we're thinking a lot about bang for our buck, right? The, in the infrastructure bill, we got $1.2 trillion of, I would definitely call it investment. But yeah, it is critically important that we are tight about that. It sounds like an enormous sum of money, and it is. Uh, but it's an enormous sum of money that could be sprinkled out without as much impact as there ought to be if we're not smart about it. So we do need to be tight. We do need to pay attention to the fact that there's almost a law of physics with big infrastructure projects that they tend to run over budget. They tend to run longer than they're supposed to. And we're working very hard to beat that, to fight that, to find ways to deliver in an efficient way so that we actually see 
$1.2 trillion worth of value in this country to go along with that, whether you call it investment or spending, I'd, I'd say it's both. Your administration has been very clear about not wanting to raise taxes on average Americans, on the middle class, but uh, gas prices at the pump have been a huge tax on anybody who is driving anywhere. Um, what do you do about that? And are you in favor of potentially putting a hold on the national gas tax in, in the meantime until those prices do come down? Well, it continues to be important to keep options open. As you know, the president's taken a lot of steps to bring relief and to help stabilize oil prices, including that big release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Of course, the long-term solution for this is energy independence and a shift to renewable energy uh, here in this country. Uh, but let's also remember that while oil prices and, and gas prices are famously something that is largely outside of the direct control of any political figure, there are a lot of things that we could be doing right now that would bring direct relief to the pocketbooks of American families uh, that are greater than most any family's gasoline bill. That includes lowering the cost of insulin. President's for it. We're getting a lot of pushback from it or on it. Uh, lowering the cost of child care. We're for it. We're getting a lot of pushback, uh, often from the very same people who are criticizing us over, uh, over inflation or, or gas prices. Uh, we had the child tax credit that brought relief to families that you know, for a lot of families, probably most of them, uh, would outweigh any price difference that, that you're seeing with gas. Uh, and we wanted to extend it. A lot of the same folks who were, were criticizing us on the Hill uh, killed that. Uh, so if we're really talking about the bottom line, the, the, the balancing of the checkbook of an American family, there are lots of things that are way more under our control than the dynamics of global oil markets at a time when an oil-producing country is going to war. Let's focus on those as well. Secretary Buttigieg, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Good to be with you. Coming up, basketball brackets, margin calls, will Russia default on its debt for the first time in decades? The question, though, is whether the Kremlin will pay and how. And the rest of the stories that got us squawking today. Hi, I'm Josie. My daughter turns five today. I'm also an Ohio State Highway Patrol trooper. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can get home to celebrate with my daughter. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Beware the Ides of March and beware a lot of talk about March Madness. Here's Joe. Did you, uh, you're done yet with the brackets? I can't figure out my password still. I've got, <laughs> I've got to the final, I've got the final eight and then it gets hard. It's hard now because I, I, I hate that. I was going to say it's hard picking it's so the first. Hard. The bracket busters. <laughs> Are you kidding? The bracket busters. That's what's going to blow you up. Is not the I hate those eight. bracket busters. And you know what? It, it, what? What kills me is when I see something in the Post or New York Post, and it says, "Yes, history can strike twice. Don't discount Baylor." Going, and I'm like, <laughs> maybe. Do I have mm -hmm. to think it? And, and then it ruins it. So I'm afraid to pick them. I'm afraid to not pick them. You know, they, they, they've they've tainted my um, you know, my thinking. They, yeah, they, whenever I read it. Then I've seen some other things. Pick your bracket. Yeah. And then and go then back go and pick the, the exact opposite. opposite. Right. The opposite. Sorry, I know you hate exact opposite. Go <laughs> and pick the opposite and put that in. I think I can I can live with exact opposite. Let's say it's 179 degrees or 181, right, 180. 181 right. degrees. Completely different. The, every okay. trade different. All right. Try it. <laughs> 
That's not nice. There's not a really good. good, DraftKings has a good bet. You can bet on um, even money on uh, Gonzaga. That's a good bet. Because really? it's minus, well, I think it's like minus 10,000 and they've got it at plus 100 for, for that. So they're, they're okay. But you can only do $50. Mm-hmm. You should do that. No, but thank you. Global markets are on high alert this week as investors weigh the risk of a possible Russia default on debt and what that could actually mean for the broader financial system. Leslie Picker joins us with the latest. Leslie, good morning. Hey, Becky, good morning. Russia has about $117 million worth of interest payments due tomorrow to international bondholders. The question, though, is whether the Kremlin will pay And how? Russia's finance minister said it was, quote, fair for the country to pay in rubles while its reserves remain frozen due to sanctions. These bonds were issued in dollars without an option for the Kremlin to pay in local currency. And it might not be feasible, given the sanctions, to get rubles to bondholders anyway. So ratings agencies, bond investors, and the overall market is simply expecting Russia to miss its payment. But a hard default would not take place for another 30 days, a grace period accorded to a delinquent borrower. In the meantime, another big uncertainty surrounds credit default swaps, which pay out if Russia meets the technical term of a default, as decided by ISDA, the International Swaps and Derivatives Association. J.P. Morgan's strategist wrote yesterday that, quote, as it stands, it looks like there will be a CDS trigger on Russian sovereign bonds, whether starting this week or later. Russia has about $20 billion in foreign currency bonds, while ruble-denominated bonds amount to $42 billion. There are also billions more in derivatives linked to a potential default. A U.S. Treasury official told Reuters overnight that they see limited direct exposure to Russian sovereign bonds within the U.S. financial system. The primary impact of all of this would be on Russia raising its future borrowing costs, guys. Leslie, add to that all of the huge moves we've seen in in things like oil prices and then these Chinese technology names recently. And you've got to imagine that there's some serious pressure points out there. We just don't know where yet. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot bubbling underneath the surface. And sometimes these things take a while to really come out, to really understand where the pain points are. But just Sharp moves in anything oftentimes can catch certain investors on on the wrong side of a trade that can create margin calls. We're seeing that not necessarily on a levered hedge fund side, but more on the corporate side where uh, commodities providers were hedged based on just the overall nature of their business. And then, of course, with the wild swings, they got caught on the wrong side of that and had to post higher margin as a result. So this is absolutely a developing story. It's something we are watching very closely and we'll, of course, be here for updates. Yeah, and watching those trades unwind just as rapidly. We saw oil at 100, WTI at $130 and change last Monday. This morning I saw it at 96 and change. Palladium had its worst day yesterday since March of 2020. So you get forced to put up these margin payments and that if you did anything to try and protect it on the other side, you could be getting hit on that end too. That's right. And it's important to remember that a lot of the price swings have been contributed by uh, algorithmic trading and uh, short squeezes, especially what we saw in the nickel market. I've talked to several sources who are fairly confident that the price activity there was a result of a short squeeze in nickel. And people who realized that there was so much uh, short interest that was getting pressured upward were essentially uh, slamming on the gas there and helping propel that higher. So that's another aspect of the the price swings that we're seeing is that the short squeezes and then what happens when they're all uh, squeezed is you see kind of the reverse take place as people try and really find a footing in these names.
and commodities. There's going to be a lot of carnage to dig through. Leslie, thank you. Today is Equal Pay Day. It symbolizes how far into the year the average woman has to work to earn what men earned the previous year. The president, the vice president, and the first lady will be delivering remarks about equal pay at a virtual White House event today, which will be attended by CEOs and members of the U.S. women's soccer team. The Biden administration is proposing new regulation banning the use of salary history in hiring and pay setting for federal employees. And the president will sign an executive order to promote pay equity and transparency for job applicants and employees of federal contractors as well. Did you have comments? No, it was just a smoldering look. That was a smoldering. A smoldering is good. Not mad, but just a... a... The Rock does it well. He does. Mm -hmm. That's the pod for today. On our rundown tomorrow, billionaire investor and hedge fund manager Leon Cooperman on investment moves he's making as the Fed gets ready to raise rates and as Putin's war in Ukraine rages on. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick and Andrew Ross-Sorkin. Catch them weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Join us back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.